Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with John, and John has recently retaken up Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we've both been very much influenced by Bonhoeffer. And so we wanted to do it, uh, some podcasts of the series, and we're not sure of the, the length of the series, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so, John, I- explain what you've been reading and where you're coming from on this. Yeah, so um, I have the opportunity to take a seminar class on Bonhoeffer. So I've been reading about Bonhoeffer and his, you know a lot of his original writings. And so the two books that I've recently read that kind of piqued my interest once again were one, Michael DeYoung's Bonhoeffer on Resistance, The Word Against the Wheel. That was just published in 2018, so a fairly new book. And then Theologian of Resistance, The Life and Thought of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Christiane Tietz. And that's an older Uh, but still only about 10 years old, sort of more of a biographical account. But why, you know, I wanted to do the podcast with you, Paul, is because I remember, well, I guess I should say, I don't think I knew who Bonhoeffer was until I met you, or maybe I'd heard the name as sort of a quotable person, but, you know, had never read anything. And I got the impression studying with you early on, and you can say where, where this is right and where it's wrong, but that you were very formed and shaped and interested in both Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and then we began uh, reading both of them, but also reading from you know their perspectives, I guess, and a lot of the classes that you were teaching. And so I wondered just about how you got interested in these guys and what effect they've had on your work in Christian life. You know, I, I'm always the last person. I genealogy of this is a little unclear, but the way that I tend to read. Bonhoeffer. I know people talk, and there's obvious shifts in his thinking, and I'm not underplaying that. But I also think that in my own reading, there is a continuity to what Bonhoeffer is doing, even in his dissertations and up to his prison letters. The focus, the way that what he has done and my own work converges is, I think, around his notion of a religionless Christianity. And, of course, he's taking up Karl Barth's critique of religion, that religion, then, is the human attempt to come to God. And what Bonhoeffer will critique of Barth later is what he calls his, you know, his positivism of revelation. But nonetheless, he believes that where he Barth gets it right is this critique of religion, and not the death of God kind of nonsense, though we don't want to that phrase, I think, that he's bringing to the discussion, I think he means it in that the genealogy of the phrase, tracing it back to Luther, that what he means is that in Christ we meet God, and that we do not have access to God on human terms. And so it is an encounter with God in Christ that is the only avenue And that, then, is over and against human religion. That accords with my own understanding of what what Christianity is about. It is a kind of suspension of the human symbolic order, the the law. Of course, Bonhoeffer is living in a time in which the church had failed, 
and he's having to deal with that reality. And so part of this, you know, his phrase, the world come of age, that we can live without God, and people are doing it quite successfully. And so what we've used God for, and what religion tends to do in the Christianity that he's critiquing, is we've used God as a kind of stopgap. Oh, well, God resolves this problem for us. And his is a critique, then, of that stopgap understanding. And so I think, yeah, obviously there, there is a kind of liberal theological taking up, just as there is a fundamentalist taking up of Bonhoeffer, both of which I think are mistaken, a misunderstanding. I think you have to put him in context, the context of Nazi Germany, but also the context of a Lutheran Christianity in which Luther's phrase, God has died on the cross, is key to both Bart and Bonhoeffer in their understanding of we meet God in Christ, and that is our beginning point, and giving up the presumption of a kind of metaphysical, you know, this is Bonhoeffer's phrase, focus on metaphysics. See, I hear in what you're saying, uh, I think the way that they both put it, actually, Bart and Bonhoeffer, is it's the word of man versus the word of God. The word of God here being the Logos, who becomes flesh for us, reveals God, is the Christ, is the one who uh, we are obligated to follow and take as our Lord. Uh, But too often we have replaced the word of God with the little w word of man. And so, and I hear this is what you're saying, sort of religion has become maybe in the worst sense, uh, and as Marx would say, an opiate for the masses, or as Gerbrock had said, you know, sort of just a projection of the self. uh, And that Bart, I mean, Bonhoeffer, well, Bart too, I guess, but Bonhoeffer may be saying, well, yeah, that's true for all, in the practical sense, that's true although it shouldn't be, that that's not what true Christianity is about, and that it's about having an encounter with the Word of God. And he's very Lutheran on this point, I think, that he thinks the way you would do that is actually through uh, hearing the gospel preached, which, as you pointed out, the Nazi church is not doing. I think he has a kind of ambiguous relationship to the church, and I think this could be argued either way. You know, does he abandon? Clearly, the, the confessing church also had you know, he, he, he has no great hope in the confessing church. And obviously the German church is for him completely corrupt. And so what is left then is faith in Christ. And by that, he's not talking about the saving of souls by this. He's, his is very much a focus on a this worldly uh, Christianity. And so what he means by faith and grace and resurrection are all focused primarily on living in this world as as we have it. Actually, I think I want to push back just a little bit on something you said. I think that the church is of supreme importance for Bonhoeffer, and that actually explains why he ends up uh, doing what he's doing. In other words, I think the church is so important for him, in fact, is this is why you see him eventually abandon the Confession Church project. And um, maybe we should talk about his biography a little bit, and I think it helps get at this, because he's, some of the problems that he's going to see in the Nazi church, he also sees in churches in the United States when he comes to visit. Though, I guess maybe we should remember he was like 23 uh, on that visit. So 
maybe the pronouncements of a 20 universal pronouncements of a 23 year old, even if he is Dietrich Bonhoeffer should be taken with a grain of salt. Right. right. Um, but you know, his dissertation written on the first dissertation written on the church, uh, Sanctorum Communio, he seems to place a high value on community, the communal church, the body of Christ coming together and hearing the gospel preached, which is very Lutheran. Now, of course, uh, as we see that church disintegrate in the 1930s in Germany, uh, eventually Bonhoeffer will abandon that project in a sense. But I think that's actually a very Lutheran, he, he approaches this in a very Lutheran way. In other words, he thinks in terms of the kingdom and the, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And as a Lutheran, he doesn't oppose those two things in any simple way. It's not a matter of church versus state. So he thinks that the kingdom of this world actually is ordained by God and has a role to play. And that role is to institute law and order such that the church can do its job. And he sees that first disintegrate in Germany. So that's maybe, you know, a first concern and what leads to the confessing church, because he's quite happy. Uh, with the state church. I, I think that's also something we have to point out, that in no way does Bonhoeffer have any similarities with free church people. I mean, this is just not the way his mind works. So that whenever the state begins to be corrupted, he thinks then it's the church's job to preach the gospel uh, all the more. And so you eventually get the confessing church. But of course, he's not even there when the Barman Declaration is written. So he's not really a part of that. Maybe to elaborate on this, he sees a similar issue in the United States, but for different reasons. So as he goes over to study with Reinhold Niebuhr at Union, he says, you know, the gospel's not preached in any church here except for uh, this Abyssinian Baptist church in Harlem. And he doesn't think that they're preaching the gospel at Union either. So we might ask ourselves, well, what were they doing at Union? And um, at the time, what they were doing was the social gospel. So they're talking about sociology, they're talking about race, they're talking about social justice issues, uh, a lot of issues that now we consider to be very close to the gospel. And Bonhoeffer hears this, and he basically says, well, they don't know they're Luther. Uh, they don't know Bart. They're not engaging anything critically. You know, they're not doing scholarship. And so he thinks the gospel's not being preached, which I think is indicative of his thought. In other words, uh, for him, it's not as if sociology, I mean, that's what he actually writes his dissertation on, right, is how can sociology be put into service of the church? Later on, though, when he sees sociology, psychology, these fields being done sort of instead of theology, he has a real problem with this. That seems to be the same issue that he takes with the Nazi church, is that uh, the Nazi state's corrupt in the sense that it becomes very apparent. The first, uh, the Aryan clause that gets inserted, the problem for Bonhoeffer with that is that it's a theological heresy because it says all people can't come to church and be saved through the church. Sadly, he's not really so against anti-Semitism, or at least not at the time, that that doesn't seem to be the problem. The problem is that it's a Christian heresy in his mind. And so then the confessing church comes. And it, it seems to be that he thinks political powers or political authorities are not doing what they've been ordained to do in his mind, which is law and order, but are now telling the church what the church can and cannot claim. And that's where the overreach comes in, which isn't the way, you know, a lot of versions of Bonhoeffer 
portray him acting. We want to make a saint out of him, in a sense, so that he just immediately sees the Nazis as evil, or he sees this autocratic, you know, as Americans, we think, oh, well, this autocratic dictatorship, he has a problem with that. But it's clear by the end of his life, he's not true even though his family were supporters of the Weimar Republic, it doesn't seem that they have any great problem with a strong, uh, nearly autocratic government. It's the problem uh, that the government is not doing, fulfilling its God-ordained purpose, but wants to overreach. So all that needs to be said. And I think as you see then the deterioration of the confessing church is that the confessing church in his mind fails because they stop proclaiming the gospel and begin to work with the state. And at this point, Bonhoeffer already thinks that's a corrupt state, but it's not as if he thinks all states are corrupt. And so he, he's very Lutheran in that sense. And maybe that makes us uncomfortable and maybe that's good that it does. But I think that's where he's at. His great repentance, I think one of his, uh, his brother-in-law who is Jewish. His twin sister's husband is Jewish. Maybe a funeral for some. A funeral for the grandfather, for the grandfather. And he uh, he refuses to do it. And he thinks of him. He thinks of it as a kind of cowardly move on his part later. He's swayed. uh, uh, And I think we have to feel the force that even a Dietrich Bonhoeffer is swayed by by the times. And we can't underestimate Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and maybe the anti-Semitism would only slowly come to repel him. Yeah, I think you're you're right there. Maybe it's an interesting question of why his life is so compelling. So if we were to talk about his biography, what part of Bonhoeffer's, or let me ask you the question this way, were you drawn to Bonhoeffer's thought first, or was it uh, the biography that ends up compelling you to read more deeply? I don't know that you can separate out the the biography. I, maybe that's just my way of thinking that the biography and the thought have to be taken together. And I, and of course, I think the big mistake is that people will take things like his the cost of discipleship and make of him a kind of uh, American evangelical. And he himself would come to see would call that book a dangerous book precisely for that reason, although he never in any way gives up or, you know, abandons that. It was the biography that is compelling, but I also think that his thought and biography have to be taken together because he's so open. Obviously, everybody claims Bonhoeffer. He's going to be claimed first by the theological liberals. Mm-hmm when his is a repudiation of theological liberalism. And then, strangely enough, he'll be taken up by Amer- American evangelicals. And, of course, even the word evangelical, maybe we need to... I, I suppose that he counts himself a Lutheran evangelical, but, of course, that <laughs> doesn't mean what we mean or what the word evangelical has come to mean in this country. And so I don't think he's in either camp. He is very much steeped in liberal theology. He understands liberal theology, but also he very early on encounters Karl Barth and is is already understanding that that's kind of a, a dead end. And so I, I think you have to take the trajectory of his entire life and what he's doing in order to read correctly any particular phase of his life. The pacifism certainly is 
a compelling thing. Even the argument, what sort of pacifist was he? I, I think that he saw himself in some way as going against his own belief system. You may disagree with me here on this. But my reading of the biography is that he was a, a pacifist. He was committed to that and would abandon that only when he sees that the church is, is failed and would consider the loss of his own soul even as a minor part of his partaking of a, a kind of an if nece a necessity and he's quite willing to do that yeah no i think this is a really interesting part of this conversation and um you hit on several things that seem to be live questions when it comes to bonhoeffer that's you know there's one camp of people who read him as a liberal theologian then more recently evangelicals have taken it up and even in this past like not this past election cycle, but the previous election cycle, you had people saying, oh, this is a Bonhoeffer moment or something like that. Uh, that phrase has gotten thrown around and it's probably utterly meaningless. And then there's in the academic circles, there's this question of whether or not you read Bonhoeffer as being uh, consistent internally and having sort of a trajectory to his work, which uh, I agree with you, I think is the case not, you know, utterly consistent and think he's a human being, you know, but much more consistent than having, say, two phases or a huge shift in his work. So I, I definitely agree with you with that. And I think that's sort of um, at least some leading Bonhoeffer scholars are agreeing with that idea. So people like de Young and Tietz are saying that Bonhoeffer's work should be read consistently. But it brings up the sort of question then, so how do you reconcile this belief in pacifism or that Christians should act nonviolently? Or uh, maybe a better way of putting it in Bonhoeffer's terms is that the church should at least act nonviolently. And I think that's what's probably problematic for modern day readers more than anything else is that I think he can conceive of a consistent, a morally consistent world in which you have Christians serving the state that is going to use the sword. But the church, the church's role is something else. Now, how do you square that? And so he obviously has some sort of strange ideas about how individual Christians can act responsibly in ways that the church cannot. And uh, I mean, personally, I wouldn't agree with where he goes there. I don't think it's a very good way of taking this up. But that also stems from some of these Lutheran ideas that he has. I think most people agree that at some point in his early life, before going back to Germany uh, in 1933, he encounters pacifism, nonviolent ideals, and associates those with what ought to be normative for the church. I think what's odd for us is that now that seems radical or almost even strange, but maybe at the time it wasn't. And that's uh, another hard part, I think, is we're reading history that's only, you know, 100 years ago. How different could it be? But as some historians have pointed out, following World War One, most people were comfortable with pacifism. But in alternative ways, I think it's even shocking to modern American Christians how obvious a nonviolent stance should have been for the church, uh, even the Protestant churches, and especially for the medieval church. It's just assumed that if you're a Christian, if the, the church ought to at least be nonviolent, and if it acts otherwise, it needs to repent. Uh, whereas we've go, gone so far away from those notions that we think the church and Christians can act in whichever way they want to violently, and as long as they can justify that in their own heads, no repentance is needed. 
So I think there's a lot of dissonance between our own time and Bonhoeffer's on that issue. But I would agree, you know, he is certainly uh, at least thinks that the church ought to be pacifist or that the mission of the church is pacifist. The mission of Christian ministers should be one that is nonviolent and pacifist. And so for him then to involve himself in this conspiracy later may at first seem inconsistent, though I think de Young makes an argument that it's not all that inconsistent of an action given his Lutheran framework for theology. And if we remember that as he's brought on to this conspiracy as somebody who's supposed to be rather low level and really his job in the German counterintelligence, you know, the official position is that he's supposed to be using his ecumenical contacts to be feeding the Nazis information, but that whole office is rather anti-Nazi. So uh, what he's actually doing is just the opposite. He's reaching out to his ecumenical contacts and basically trying to see if they could broker a peace if they're able to get rid of. So if the Germans are able to get rid of Hitler, if these conspiracy plots are able to get rid of Hitler, would the allied nations be willing to broker some peace that allows Germany to form a new government? And I think the complex politics of the time get involved here. And that's that uh, if you remember, the Weimar Republic isn't abolished or overthrown, it's suspended. So when Hitler comes to power, it suspends the Weimar Republic, not because he's overthrown the government, but because he has taken extraordinary executive powers due to the burning of the Reichstag, sort of like emergency measures that then will last for uh, well over a decade. So in Bonhoeffer's mind, and then Danani, his brother-in-law, who works much higher up in counterintelligence, and in these circles, what they want to go to is maybe not back to the Weimar Republic because it was too weak, but to some version of government that is not Hitler, is still strong enough to satisfy German desires for their own national ideas about themselves, but something that is closer to the Weimar Republic, or at least something with constitutional legality. And uh, that's an approximate aim. You know, that's not the the goal of any radical group, <laughs> whether right or left wing, you know. Uh-huh. So Bonhoeffer's trying to do that, and he knows from working in the ecumenical movement, you know, Bishop George Bell of the Church of England, he's got contacts in Sweden and Norway. He's con- you know, he got contacts with people like Karl Barth, and these are the folks that he's, he's actually getting together with. And I think it's actually Winston Churchill through Bishop Bell who eventually says no, like, we're going to utterly destroy Germany. There's no leaving Germany intact. Mm-hmm. And that's when, okay, so even Bonhoeffer's mission is sort of pointless at that point. But what they get indicted for is that Danani, his brother-in-law, is keeping a record of all of what they would consider war crimes that aren't war crimes in the Third Reich. So all of these legal actions, because the Constitution has been suspended and Hitler's word carries the word of law, they're keeping a record, hoping that once they get this approximate government up and running, all of these things will be considered war crimes and then you know, people can be put on trial. And I, say, I think all this history is important because it shows us probably that Bonhoeffer is not as radical as we want him to be or that he's not more radical than we want him to be. You know, he's, you know for the pacifists, it's like, okay, well, he wasn't really... Uh, it's not like Bonhoeffer was trying to kill Hitler himself. He was trying to, in his mind, I think, return to some sort of state that could be considered ordained by God in a Lutheran framework. 
Uh, now, if you're not a Lutheran, you might think, well, that doesn't exist. <laughs> but in his mind, anyway, that's what he's aiming for. Uh, and with a church that no longer exists, what other job can he do, basically? I'm not saying I want to push back, but I would understand that there would be people that would want to say that he was a little more complicated than that. And that is that when he talks about the world, by that he means that God is redeeming the world, is then thinking in terms of a kind of universal sphere in which all things then are going to be taken up by God. Uh, Certainly he did not cling to a division between the two kingdoms that we get in Lutheranism, and that he then has an understanding that Christ reigns, Christ rules, and that reign is being established. You know, you could quote him, but probably you could quote him in, in, in two directions here as to how he's understanding the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God coming together. Well, I think it's true. Uh, actually, I, so I'm going to say I think he still is a Lutheran on this point. I mean, Lutherans believe, as, as they Christians, you know, that um, the church, the mission of the church in the world is redemption. So it, it's, in no way did he not believe in some sort of final and full redemption. I think he thinks that the church's role is to preach the gospel so that people recognize that they need to be submit to Christ. And that they're, in other words, there are not two eternal kingdoms. So the kingdom of this world is provisional at best, but that's uh, you get this not only in Lutheranism but also just an Augustinian, you know, a Christian outlook, an Augustinian Christian outlook. So that for the time being, there's a role for the state, but ultimately the final end of human humanity, of human beings, for the world, all creation is to submit to Christ as the Lord over all. So I think he's definitely saying that, but from his perspective in Germany. At this point, you, there is no church to do that any longer. You know, there is no church to proclaim the gospel is basically what he's saying. And wh- how did you get in that situation? You know, he might say, well, uh, obviously it seems that the state is the problem. So what has to happen first? And, and I mean, this goes to why did he go back to Germany in the first place? He had the opportunity to escape. Reinhold Niebuhr had made arrangements for him to come to the United States he could have gone to England and stayed there throughout the duration of the war. Uh, and instead, he goes back to Germany, sort of at the prodding of Karl Barth, but also in his own conscience, it seems that he recognizes he has to suffer with the church through the war, come whatever may. He actually has a very ominous statement like, um, I don't know if it's in a diary or what, but he says, uh, you know, I have the feeling that this decision may mean more than I know. And of course, it obviously does because he goes back to his death, but that he feels like he has to stand in solidarity with the suffering of the church so that he might build the church on the other side, rebuild the church on the other side. I think as a theologian and as a pastor, his vocation is certainly with the church. In other words, I don't think that in any other circumstance, Bonhoeffer would have been comfortable going and working for the state. He saw his job. And the job of the church is basically to overcome the world by preaching the gospel. And as you put it, such that Christ's claim would be uh, overall, but that that would actually be realized. So that he already believes it's true, but the way that's realized is by the preaching of the word. So to that end, I, I think he does see a role, though, of the state, at least in the meantime, though it's a provisional 
Yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, some people call it a provisional dualism or something like that. It's not an absolute dualism in any real sense. Yeah. It's actually close to your thought in a way that uh, you have to be able to understand the world as a construct. Obviously, he himself would refuse to have served in the military. And I Which think is that, why he goes to work for counterintelligence. Yeah. And so that did, it, I think he probably would have happily served as a chaplain, but he couldn't. Yeah. Not, not in the Nazi church. That's right. Not, yeah. yeah. And so, I, you know, his whole point of redemption, maybe that needs to be brought out. What he's thinking of as redemption is not the redemption of souls from the world, but he's thinking of, of a, this worldly cosmic redemption. And the focus is not on a future redemption, but the unfolding of this redemption, as I understand it, historically and now. If you were to ask, you know, what world is Christ Lord over? You'd say this one. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. His is neither a pietistic redemption of souls, nor is it a kind of deliverance from uh, out of the world, but it's very much actually in a very different context. You know, it's a, a, a kind of Wendell Berry-ish a focus on here and now. And even the resurrection, I think he's reading this as not simply a future overcoming of death, but for him, the importance of the resurrection is the, the capacity of living with that reality now of both death and resurrection. And again, I think some of those ideas are just very traditional Christian ideas. I think the danger is always, of course, apparently Bonhoeffer can look just like whoever reads him. So that, you know, you have widely varying biographies that are saying this, working with the same facts of his life. Uh, so you have Marsh's biography versus Metaxas's biography. Uh, and then, of course, there's like Betga's magisterial biography over his life. Uh, I think putting all these together, it just seems to be that Bonhoeffer is able to be used for whatever purposes people want to put him to. And so, yeah, you, you do have all of these sort of conflicting ideas or conflicting uh, accounts of who Bonhoeffer is. Maybe uh, since you brought it up, you can address it. <laughs> that is Metaxas' biography and, and a kind of claiming of Bonhoeffer by conservative evangelicals. Yeah, so I would not recommend anybody read Metaxas's biography. <laughs> uncritically, uh, Bonhoeffer just ends up looking like a modern-day American evangelical, which is to say not a, not a pacifist in the end, not one terribly concerned with notions of uh, what is the church's role in preaching Christ crucified such that Christ's claim comes over the whole earth or anything like that. But it is sort of this, you know, flat reading of Bonhoeffer against the Nazis, Bonhoeffer preaching a gospel of how, you know, you got to get saved, you get saved in community. You know, there's all of these sort of modern day catchwords. And then the way that works out is that Bonhoeffer looks like the sort of person who would overthrow a government, any government that would impinge upon your Christian rights. Uh, I don't think that is at all true of who Bonhoeffer was. Marsh's biography is older and is sort of the liberal Protestant version of the same thing, and Bonhoeffer ends up looking like a Christian who is uh, both a pacifist and very concerned with social causes, 
I just don't think that's the case either in the sense that he doesn't actually seem at all very perturbed by issues of social justice. The thing he seems to be most concerned with is preaching the gospel. And that like Bart and I guess Luther before them, he thinks that in preaching the gospel, those who hear have a literal encounter with Christ. Uh, so it's not about you know, getting to know the historical Jesus. It's not about being able to answer the question, what would Jesus do? But in the preaching of the gospel, one has an encounter with Christ that bids them to come and die. Yeah. And that suffering with Christ, at the same time that he's abandoning any kind of pietistic individualism or autonomy, there is a kind of existential side to Bonhoeffer in which the individual is very much before God and his choosing is before God. And in that sense, I think he is standing over and against a church that it imagines as, you know, he re- a kind of grand inquisitor sense in the brothers Karamazov in which the church says, well, we'll do your believing for you. We'll do your choosing for you. And Bonhoeffer. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think you have to make sure, I think you really have to put that in the context of uh, he was living, he did not know that Nazism was going to fail. So I, I think the tendency is we read him post-war. Uh, I don't think he had any trouble at all. I think he would have been happy and would have thought it was his Christian duty to work within the state church uh, up until the state church begins to commit the first heresy is just saying that all people can't be saved through it. Uh, I don't think he has any trouble at all, actually, with an institutional church. And that the, when you get this idea of how is the free individual going to act, it's when the church has already been complicit, not with a, a state that he would think is just, but with an unjust, totally unredeemable, corrupt state. And, you know, it's our hindsight to look back and say, oh, yeah, well, Nazism only lasted for what, you know, 1933 all the way through 45, uh, just a little over 10 years. But for Bonhoeffer, I think it's an open question to does it ever end? What ends even if Hitler dies, even if they're successful? What sort of government gets instituted in Germany after that? I don't think he has our ability to sort of think about this in terms of universals. I don't think he actually was having this conversation at that level of abstraction at all. I think the conversation he's having about the church and free uh, individuals and how they act within the context of a corrupt state that it is no longer doing what it was ordained to do in a church that has been corrupted by the state, basically a failed church that is no longer proclaiming the gospel. This is a point that I think goes back to what he means by a religionless Christianity. Let me read you a quote. Our whole 1900-year-old Christian preaching and theology rests on the religious a priori of mankind. Christianity has always been a form, perhaps the true form of religion. But if one day it becomes clear that this a priori does not exist at all, but was a historically conditioned and transient form of human self-expression. And if therefore man becomes radically religionless, and I think that is already more or less the case, else how is it, for example, that the war in contrast to all previous ones is not calling forth any religious reaction? What does that mean for Christianity? 
it means that the foundation is taken away from the whole of what has up to now been our Christianity, and that there remains only a few last survivors of the age of chivalry, or a few intellectually dishonest people on whom we can descend as religious. I think he is picturing a, a, a world shift. I think he is talking about a universal shift in which we move into a, a Christianity that is no longer religious. And not I'm not talking about the li religious liberal understanding of this. He says if we don't want to do all of that, if our final judgment must be that the Western form of Christianity too was only a preliminary stage to a complete absence of religion. What kind of situation emerges for us, for the church? How can Christ become the Lord of the religionless as well? Are there religionless Christianities? And of course, his answer is yes, there are. If religion is only a garment of Christianity, and even this garment has looked very different at times, then what is a religionless Christianity? Yeah, I would just say that I think you have to take the context, and the context is he, would, while he was writing ethics up until the point he's imprisoned, ethics is him basically pivoting and saying the way we're going to do Christian ethics is not by considering universals, but by considering uh, you know concrete situations, and then the concrete situation he finds himself in is imprisoned by the Nazis, and so I would read that wholly him talking about the German church under Nazism, that he's literally living through religionless Christianity. He's living through this realization of people that, uh, oh, this church has failed. And so what are they going to do next? I don't think he's talking universally about Christianity around the world or Catholic Christianity. I, I guess that my own understanding of the New Testament, and he's going to re refer to this, I think in universal terms, in his reading of the New Testament, when he refers to Paul's notion that it's no longer circumcised and uncircumcised. That is, that we've passed from a religion, circumcision, to a place of non-religion, in which the marks of religion no longer hold true. That is, I think he's reading the New Testament from this religionless perspective, and he is not simply talking about a passing moment, but he's talking about the emergence of a new form, uh, a fulfillment, a maturing of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But again, I'm going to push back and say, I don't think he's doing that for Catholic Christianity. He's doing that because of the circumstances in Germany, and he's already writing to people about what they need to do on the other side of this thing. In other words, for him, the defeat of Nazi Germany is not assured. The fact that there might be a world where you you could go on doing. So, for example, say this is a critique of universal Christianity. I don't think he can envision a world while he's sitting in prison and writing these letters where he says on the other side of this, he's going to write a book about this and it's going to inform Christianity around the world. Quite the contrast, what he's doing is he's sitting there in his prison cell worried about the church in Germany having failed and if they can get rid of Hitler, or if Hitler can be removed, or if not, and Nazi Germany continues on, what does it mean for the church in Germany uh, to do anything like Christianity? And so he's trying to work out solutions 
for that specific set of uh, circumstances. And we have this benefit, you know, I mean, it's too easy to read this universe as like theology. This is just a theology book, which it wasn't. These are letters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's too easy for us to do that, having known that, oh, Nazi Germany will fail. Uh, and when it does, you know, there's a bunch of missionaries that go into Germany, and then Germans begin to look like different sorts of Christians they were before. The Catholic Church continues on. The Protestant churches continue on. It's a largely post-Christian Europe. But the faithful in Germany basically just return to their old traditional ways of being Christian. I don't think Bonhoeffer can, I I do not think that's the world he's dealing with when he's imprisoned by the Nazis. And so I don't think we're doing justice to, in other words, to saying what his theology was at the time was letters that are trying to deal with the concrete situation at hand, which is the church has basically failed because you have this militantly, you know, atheistic and corrupting and illegal uh, unredeemable regime. Uh, I don't mean this as a antagonistic question. It's it is purely out of curiosity. Is this the understanding of the book that you've read? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I was convinced, and this is where my argument's coming from. Uh, I'm basically convinced by De Young's book because I, I think the criticism would be that perhaps he does this and makes it seem almost overly systematic. But the, his support comes from the fact that Bonhoeffer's own, because he's basically what he does is he goes through Bonhoeffer's progression from, you know, traveling, thinking about theology, writing his dissertations, pushing back against some of this old, stale, uh, dead-end liberal Protestantism, accepting Bart, then moving into the confessing church period, and then eventually abandoning the confessing church and uh, working for counterintelligence up until being involved in this conspiracy and in prison. So de Young's going to take all of that and say, here are categories in Bonhoeffer's thought that make sense of the decisions he makes throughout. Now, one could say, well, is that overly systematic? Maybe so. And so uh, I would say that's a valid critique. But on the flip side, somebody who is as systematic of a thinker as Bonhoeffer, like if you go and look at some of the things that he's writing and the way he understands his project in the church, then maybe not. Maybe he is planning and saying, well, when things get to this point, then here is the action uh, that I need to be thinking about, or here's the sort of actions I need to take. When things get to this point, then here's the place I'm at. It all revolves around this phrase that's in one of his works, famous as, uh, you know, seizing the wheel. When does the church seize the wheel? Uh, it's not enough for the church simply to take care of, for, take care of those whom the wheel runs over. But at some point, the church has to seize the wheel. So that's an awful paraphrase of that quote. And he works through and he kind of talks about like, well, where are we at uh, when this is going on? The thing is, Bonhoeffer still thinks when he's working with the co-conspirators, at the same time he's writing ethics, mind you, he still thinks that they might be able to salvage Germany that they might be able to come to some sort of arrangement where there's a state that's going to be workable, uh, where the church then might be salvaged from Nazism. The problem then is when he's imprisoned and he gets so depressed, you know, he's ready to commit suicide. He's suicidal at times. Like, what way forward is there? All of the plots that he was involved in or all of the plots that he knew about have now failed and Hitler is still in power. Uh, what hope is there? And so then in this last phase of his thought, which is basically just letter writing, 
uh, from a prison cell, mind you. It's not like he is sitting down and saying, well, here's what I would want to... It's not like ethics. In other words, it's not like a book where he's sitting down and saying, I'm going to write a manuscript that I'm going to have published. What is he going to do? What does he think the church needs to do in this current, in his current situation, in the situation of Nazi Germany? That's what he's up to in prison. I'm not enough of a Bonhoeffer expert other than to offer up a counter narrative from someone else. And I, I was reading a dissertation by Peter Hooten. It's an unpublished dissertation as far as yeah. I know. And he is actually, he refers to, to Young and takes a counter mm-hmm. point to it. And so just to say there are two alternative understandings. Oh, absolutely. More than two. Yeah. I mean, that uh, we should do a favor to those listening and say, people do not agree about this. Yeah. And so in my own reading, maybe because of my own prejudices, thinking of the time, you know, that we are in, not in the sense of a, a kind of fundamentalism, but the failure of the church in the United mm-hmm. States, I think is, in some senses, on the order of the failure of the church in Nazi Germany, that there has been a caving in to the cult of personality. There has been a caving in to stupidity, and actually that's Bonhoeffer's greatest fear, is stupidity. Mm. It's not evil men, it's the stupid people that he thinks are the most dangerous. When he's talking, you know, he's not talking about his specific time, but he's talking about knowledge, religious people, and he's talking about a different understanding of God, that God is understood as the God of the gaps, the one who fills in our problems, that he's saying that we're emerging. And I guess the, the contention here is he's saying that, oh, this is true for Nazi Germany and only Nazi Germany, or is he talking about that, as I, I can quote here, I've come to be doubtful of talking about any human boundaries. Is even death, which people now hardly fear, and is sin, which they now hardly understand, still a genuine human boundary? What he's saying is that the way that Christianity has functioned up to now is the way that other religions has functioned, is that we've imagined that God then is beyond the boundaries, that God fills in. And his point is, I should like to speak of God, not on the boundaries, but at the center, not in weaknesses, but in strength, and therefore not in death and guilt, but in man's life and goodness. As to the boundaries, it seems to me better to be silent and leave the insoluble unsolved. That is, he's not talking about Nazi Germany here. He's talking about secularism. He's talking about the rise of a new understanding, science, uh, sociology, psychology. He's referring to all of these things and saying we're in a different period, not just in Nazi Germany. And he's writing this. This is not all from letters and papers from prison, but I think obviously much of his, this goes back, I think, his understanding of a over and against religion. I think that that's the continuity that you can trace throughout Bonhoeffer's thought. So it's not just the failure of the state church in Germany, but he's realizing 
that we've entered into a new period and that calls for a, a religionless Christianity in the sense that it's going to pass beyond this notion of a God not at the center, at the boundaries, to a God who's at the center and in the midst of human strength. Uh, what is that? I think. No, I'm, I mean, what, what, what does that look like? What does it look like to have a, a God at the center of human strength? I think it is a claiming of God in the midst of human thought, human knowledge. Am I agreeing with Bonhoeffer here uh, to a degree, but I also think there's a kind of weakness in his thought. That is, he's picturing a kind of foundation that human science, human sociology, human psychology uh, is quite adequate without God. And he's saying that's okay, that's fine. I feel a kind of unease with what he's saying, because in a sense, I think he's almost too confident in other words, his is not here a picture of the failure of human culture. He's certainly going to see that in Nazi Germany, but he's seeing that there is a, a rise, a worldwide rise of an order of understanding that no longer requires God in the way that he had previously been required. What, he, what this looks like, well, he had projected a book that he would write in which he would describe this, but of course they kill him before. Mm -hmm. He writes that book. So what he might have imagined, I don't know, but I think we can project forward and picture a Christianity that is no longer dependent upon simply the structures of organized religion, of a, a church institution, of a Christianity that is, in fact, a following of Christ wherever Christ leads. That is, what this looks like, in a sense, is a kind of suspension of the notion that we can grasp this thing in its entirety, that there is a faith element to it. You know, this is his question, how this religious Christianity looks, what form it takes, is something that I'm thinking about a great deal. And he says, well, I'll write to you again. And of course, he's thinking about it. He doesn't. But but we don't get to see the end point of his thought. To one point you made, I think he definitely makes this turn to where he is not as dismissive towards the end of his life of, say, probably what they were doing at Union when he visited and said there was no gospel being preached there as he you know, was when he was younger. So that's an interesting maturing of his thought. Here's the question, right? And this is for Bonhoeffer scholars more than anything else, because I guess I should say, my stake in what Bonhoeffer thought is limited in the sense that I don't necessarily agree with his theological perspective either way. But I think the interesting question to ask about this, and this seems to be what people are arguing about right now, is do you base his theology off of the letters he's writing when he's in despair and in prison? Or do you have to read those somehow in continuity, not uh, making everything that came before it match up to those letters, but the opposite way around? In other words, do these letters have to be understood in what he's already said, even what he was writing up until the time he was imprisoned? And that seems to be a huge divide among Bonhoeffer scholarship. And I don't think they, the question probably isn't that simple in the sense that there's a whole precedent of reading Bonhoeffer in such a way that wasn't that systematically self-conscious in the sense that the letters and papers from prison were the first thing that was published in English 
And this is the way English scholarship then gets shaped about uh, what does Bonhoeffer think as a theologian. And then historically, the earlier stuff was just put into uh, that framework. So people had made their minds up in the English-speaking world about what Bonhoeffer thought as a theologian, largely based off of these ideas, religionless Christianity, and then read everything else in accordance with that. Now there's pushback uh, saying, well, maybe that's not how we ought to do this, but his theological thought can be read as having a trajectory towards those letters and papers in prison, but probably ethics, the last major thing that he was writing, thinking he was going to publish before he gets imprisoned, should uh, be the culmination of that project and then also shape how we read those letters and papers. So just to your point earlier, there is a lot of division on how to read Bonhoeffer. I think you can give too much weight to the letters, and, and I don't mean to be doing that. On the other hand, I think that I am talking about a kind of continuous form of thought beginning with his encounter with Bart, that he had always been thinking in these terms. And I don't mean this, in fact, part of this, I don't quite comprehending myself what his attitude might have been. In other words, you may be correct that I don't think he's anti-church. I don't, don't, uh, in other words, I think that's a misreading. I think he, he has great hope for the church. And so whatever he might mean by this, even in the, the letters uh, I think he can still talk about a religionless Christianity and still then have hope for the church, but he's thinking of the church now as a new thing, no longer simply this institution, but he's going to define the church as those who suffer with Jesus. In other words, the church is going to be marked by, as Paul describes it, the suffering of Christ. And so, I do think he's speaking, you know, he, he says as much. I think he says, I think it means to speak, to speak religiously is to speak metaphysically. We're no longer going to speak metaphysically, and we're no longer going to speak individualistically. He's not saying this is because of Nazi Germany. He says this is relevant to the biblical message hasn't the individualistic question completely been left out? In other words, that's no longer the point of Christianity, and that had previously been the point. But isn't that what he's always working with, though, in the sense he's saying a change has happened in the world? Yes, but it's it's a change that is accounted for in the Bible. Fundamentally, he says this is biblical. Does the question about saving one's soul appear in the Old Testament at all? He's going to turn to the, the Old Testament, interestingly, and say this has always been the case, and we're now realizing it. Yeah, that's in, I mean, that's interesting. It's an interesting question, really, just asking about what is he doing. Uh, I guess I'm kind of unwilling just to separate him out of this, the context of he's living through I mean, I don't know. He's living through basically like an apocalypse. Everything that he grew up valuing is now gone. And he's writing these letters, not for sure if he's going to live or not, not for sure if, you know, Nazi Germany is going to take over the world or not. Uh, What world? That's the part where I guess I'm unwilling to go there. I'm not for sure if he's envisioning or even as capable at this point of thinking in terms uh, of a world that does not look like Nazism. But Ah. I don't think, but here's what I will say. I don't think that Bart 
or Bonhoeffer ever entertained free church ideas. I don't think that it is in their makeup as individuals or the Christianity that they were familiar with, the Christianity that they lived their whole lives in. And so I think that's an interesting, so which complicates like, what is he saying? What does it mean to be talking about religious, religionless Christianity as Christians in the magisterial Protestant tradition? I, I don't think they're becoming Anabaptists. I don't think they're becoming, not in terms of what I mean by that is, I just don't think they're willing to make a leap or a jump out of the tradition that they find themselves in into the free church traditions that they were aware of or even a new free church tradition. I don't see that as being a part of the trajectory of either of their thought. And I don't have a response because uh, that you can find in Bart, he has a deep appreciation for a Catholic Christianity. And so I, what he might have meant, I think, is a point of speculation that we don't know what he meant. But I think that he certainly means that something universal is taking place. He is talking about the gospel coming to its kind of fullness. What is above this world is in the gospel intended to exist for this world. He says, I mean that not in an anthropocentric sense of liberal, mystic, pietistic, ethical theology, but in the biblical sense of creation and of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's doing theology. He's not just doing a point-in-time kind of thinking, but he sees his, his thought as uh, the church coming of age. The world is coming of age. He says this, that this is thoughts on the day of the baptism of his godson. By the time you have grown up, he says, the church's form will have changed greatly. We are not yet out of the melting pot. And any attempt to help the church prematurely to a new expansion of its organization will merely delay its conversion and purification. He's saying the whole thing is being converted. The whole thing is being purified. It is not for us to prophesy the day, although the day will come, when men will once more be called so to utter the word of God that the world will be changed and renewed by it. He means that in the church, but he's saying, I don't know how. I don't, in other words, I think he's saying, I can't envision this, but I see that it's happening. Well, I think you're reading him very charitably. I mean, to me, it sounds like a letter to your godson who's baptized into a specific church. It does not sound, you're reading it very charitably in the sense that it has all these theological nuances and overtones, and I'm, I, I don't know that I agree. Here, here's a question that I have, and I don't have the answer to this question. Is in ethics, basically the whole project is to say, we're going to turn away from universals, we're going to turn away from abstractions, that we're going to deal with the concrete situation. So if what you're saying is true, then a few months later in prison, he's doing theology for a universal church. I don't know. Uh, that seems to me to, to be a drastic shift in thought from what he was, his project in ethics uh, that does not get finished than in this private letter writing and correspondence. And that's, uh, I guess, is what I'm having trouble squaring. What he's abandoning in ethics is a human-centered ethical understanding. Uh, I think he's saying that ethics, I mean, he does say that ethics is the fall of man. Metaphysics, maybe we could say, is the fall of man. Religion is the fall of man. 
And redemption is a turning away from that fall. Yeah, that's still more abstraction, though. I mean, he's literally saying the pro- the point of ethics is to address concrete situations. That's the project of ethics. And so that's where my disconnect is, is where he's, he's writing a book and saying the way ethics needs to be done is so that all ethical reasoning addresses concrete situations. And then in this private letter correspondence, it's uh, he's automatically now not doing that and thinking back in terms of abstractions and universals. I may not be comprehending your point. That is, you're right, that he, he thinks ethics has to be worked out in a concrete situation, but he doesn't think theology has to be worked out and shaped. In other words, his point is that understanding of ethics is itself universal. But in these letters, in as much as we're talking about the church, we are talking about concrete situations. Uh, we should actually probably look through this further in the next podcast as we talk about his theology. I'm quite open to a counter-argument here. Yeah, the way I'm reading him right at this moment is he is not writing provisional instructions to in a time of emergency, but he's saying something is happening to the church and his theology is written in, in this new age. And why I think this is important, and I think it's even good that maybe we're taking both sides of this, is because the question I really want to talk about or to address is, is Bonhoeffer a martyr? I think we ought to do this for the last podcast. And why that's an important question is because if what a martyr is, is somebody who has lived out their Christian faith in such a way, even that they were willing to die for it, and that now provides the church an example to do likewise, Uh, One, we have to answer the question, is that true of Bonhoeffer? But we would have to be able to say what that content is. So what exactly did he do that qualifies martyrdom in such a way that it's an example of a Christian life for us? And that seems to be a key question. That's what I want to get to. I like it. I like it. Let's. uh, Yeah, no, it's good. Hey, it's a lot of fun, John. Hey, good, yeah. Okay. Good conversation. Thanks. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.